glorified before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew, thanks, brother. Church family, let me invite you to take God's Word and join me in Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Initially, it was going to be verses 7 through 12. Uh, Verses 7 through 11, though, we'll save verse 12 to next week's text. This morning, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 is our text. You might recall that back in Matthew chapter 6, and even as you're turning to Matthew 7, I might would ask you to let your eyes just fall back to Matthew chapter 6, particularly that section verses 5 to 13, you might recall there when we last studied in that text that Jesus is teaching there, He's teaching His followers, His disciples, His people, He's teaching us how to pray. He's telling us to not be like the hypocrites who only pray to be seen by others, but He calls us to a right communion with God, and then He walks us through a model of prayer, if you will that helps us frame our prayer in such a way that God is honored and glorified and in such a way that we rightly commune with God in prayer. And so when we come out of a a text like this, or maybe when we read other passages in Scripture that speak to, to prayer and call us to pray, we walk out of those passages with an understanding of, I I know that I should pray. I I know that I need to pray. I know that I have been commanded to pray. I I know that Jesus expects, just as a normal Christian in a normal relationship with Him, Jesus even expects that I will pray. We know that one of the rich ways in which we commune with God is through prayer. We know that prayer is an act of obedience and worship. And we know that there is power in prayer. We tell others to pray. We teach our children how to pray. Simply put, we are a people, as the people of God, we are a people who believe in prayer. However, the reality is that sometimes, sometimes we simply do not pray. Sometimes, if we are honest, we might even go longer lengths of time without praying. Why? Why is that? And I think that if we were to really to try to get to the bottom of the why, we could probably sit here all day and, and, and walk through all the reasons why sometimes we just don't pray. Why, when we know the innumerable benefits of prayer, why do we not actually pray? Why, when we know that prayer feeds our communion and fellowship with God, why do we let that communion grow cold due to our prayerlessness? Why do we rob ourselves of God's power in our lives because we don't go to Him and ask for His power in our lives? Why? Again, probably lots of different answers. Let me, if I can, focus in on one potential answer to that question of why do we not pray? 
One potential answer is this. Sometimes, I think, we don't pray because we wrongly believe that God doesn't want to hear from us. Sometimes I think we don't pray because we wrongly believe that God doesn't want anything to do with us in our sin against Him. Sometimes I think we don't pray because we doubt that God is a God who actually delights in giving us good things. And so sometimes I think we doubt His character. Maybe we don't want to doubt His character. Maybe we're not even voicing that we doubt His character. But, but then practically we're living out that we doubt His character. We doubt His Word to us. And both His character and His Word tell us that He is a good Father. As we'll see this morning, who really does know how to give good gifts to His children. But we stop believing that about Tim. Maybe we think wrongly I just I don't deserve I don't deserve good things from God I don't deserve to commune with him I mean I'm looking in Matthew 6 and he tells me how to pray but then he tells me a whole long section here about not worrying and about not trusting in self but the reality is I'm a worrier and I trust in myself surely God doesn't want to hear from somebody like that Surely God only wants to hear from those that perfectly trust Him and are never anxious about anything. And so we look at our lives, our conduct, our speech, our attitudes, our doubts, our faithlessness, and we think, there's no way God wants to hear from me. I've blown it today, I've blown it this week, I've blown it in this season of my life, and we become bit by bit a prayerless people. As we doubt God's goodness and His desire to do good things for us. And I want to suggest if I can this morning that therein lies the problem. I think sometimes we spend way too much time looking at self. And not enough time looking at God. And when we look to self, we become crippled in our prayer. When we look to self, we become aware of our own inability, but yet we find ourselves in this vicious cycle of having to try harder and do more, and it continues to yield and profit us nothing, yet if we would just but look at God, if we would be reminded of His character, if we would be reminded of His disposition toward you, His child, that might then fuel our prayer and reignite our communion with God. Is this not why Jesus begins the model prayer in chapter 6 and verse 9 by pointing our attention where? To whom? Our Father who is in heaven. What does Jesus want for us in prayer? He doesn't want us looking at ourselves. To be sure, we confess our sin. We acknowledge our sin before God. But when it comes to our understanding of God's disposition toward us, we don't need to look to ourselves to say, I've blown it too much this week. Therefore, God doesn't want anything to do with me. Instead, we need to direct our hearts and our minds and everything that we are to God. And when we do that, we'll find as we'll see in the text before us this morning a God who loves us 
A God who delights in us. Who wants to hear from us. We'll find that God wants to hear our requests. He wants to answer our requests. He wants to give to us better than we can ask or imagine. And so saints, my hope this morning is as we look at yet another text on prayer, that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would be compelled to be a people who delight to pray, who want to pray, who do not shrink away from prayer. My hope for us this morning is that Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 would be so intimately and closely true for us. You remember what the author of Hebrews says? Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in our time of need. God loves you. God wants to hear from you. God delights to answer your prayer. What is, according to Scripture, God's heart toward your request? Let's look together. Matthew 7, start in verse 7 with me. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or, what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him, well, what is God's heart toward our request? A couple things here for us. I want us to see two realities of God's heart here in the text. One, verses 7 and 8, and the other, verses 9, 10, and 11. So number one, God's heart is to answer prayer. God's heart. The normal way in which God's, God operates, God's desire, in God's relationship with His people, God's heart is to answer prayer. Look at how this begins in verse 7. Look back to the text with me. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock. And it will be opened to you. Notice all the affirmatives there. Ask, you will receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it will be opened to you. But what I really want us to do is to focus our minds and our attention upon those three main verbs that make up the structure of verse 7. Ask, seek, and knock. Here, Jesus kind of builds the whole argument, this whole moment of teaching around those three verbs. Each of those three verbs, all of them, are in the present tense. And they all carry then the idea of not a one-time asking, one-time seeking, one-time knocking, but an ongoing continual action. So the idea here is then keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on 
knocking. Uh, Beloved, let us remember. Let us remember that we are called to be a people who continually pray. The reality of prayer. And so often, the way that God works is that we are called to continually ask. To continually seek. To continually knock. To not become frustrated or disappointed or put out with God when we don't get an immediate answer to our request. To keep on asking. Think about the word ask here with me. He calls us to ask. And I want you to notice the ascending order of urgency in these three verbs. Ask, and then seek, and and then knock. He begins, though, with ask. This this implies what? It implies that we just simply don't know. And so we have to ask. It implies that we don't have. And so we have to ask if we want to receive. It, It implies that I cannot... But as I direct my prayer to the Lord, as I keep on asking, I'm acknowledging in that moment that I might not have, but God does. I might not be able, but God is. Prayer really, at its heart, at its core, is an act of humility. It's an act of humility that bows low and acknowledges our inability And God's ability. And it may be worth asking our hearts this morning, do we even humble ourselves enough to ask? Or do we walk about in our own confidence, in our own ability, never asking, never praying, never coming before the Lord? I would remind us of James chapter 4 and verse 12, the simple truth that you do not have because you do not ask. And so then, in Jesus calling us to ask here, we understand that there's something we're lacking. We acknowledge that God has it, and so we ask of Him. The urgency builds, though, in that second verb, seek. Seek. That implies that you're still asking but, but there seems to be here some other action, some, some ascending urgency here. The idea here is asking of God in prayer and then an earnest seeking after that which you're asking for. So how do we do that? What does that look like? It's a seeking through a continual prayer. Not just a one-time ask, but an ongoing seeking this out in prayer. It's a, it's a seeking through searching the Scriptures. Along with your prayer, you are searching the Scriptures to see, might I find an answer to my request in the Word of God? It's a seeking in prayer by asking others, hey, will you come alongside of me and will you pray with me in this for this request? And again, I think we ask ourselves this morning, are we those who seek? Or are we those who kind of give God a a, a one shot at this, God? I'm I'm going to pray because the Bible tells me to, but God, I'm going to give you one shot. I'm going to give you about 24 hours, and if I don't hear an affirmative from you, I'm going to take some matters into my own hands. 
Or are we those who continually seek? Not easily frustrated, not easily discouraged when God doesn't respond to our initial prayer. And then, at the top of this ascending order, is this verb uh, to, to keep on knocking. You ask, and you seek, and then you knock. This implies both asking and, and still seeking. And you, you go to the very source. You go to the spot where you can get help, and you just knock on the door until there's an answer. And you just keep beating your knuckles against the door. You keep praying. You keep sitting right there at the throne of grace. You have won access through the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are beckoned into the very throne room of God and you just keep knocking until God answers. Whether that be a no, whether that be a yes. The, the whole scene in verse 7 is, is a scene, it's a scenario that I think all parents, particularly moms, I think you understand because you have lived out this moment firsthand. You know the scene. It's been a long day. And by a long day, I mean it's 9.30 in the morning, alright? And you're there with your child, your children. And you're shepherding, and you're teaching, and you're correcting, and you're playing, and you're doing all the things, and you're tired. And you don't have any brain bandwidth left. So mama needs about 10 minutes, alright? And so the scene is, you look, you love your children, all right? Nobody's questioning that, but you need 10 minutes. And so what do you do? You go, maybe you look at your child, maybe you throw on uh, some Mickey Mouse, and you say, hey, I need you to sit right here for 10 minutes, and uh, mom will be back. And maybe you grab a, a piece of chocolate, and you find uh, a closet to hide in, and you shut the door behind you, because mama needs just 10 minutes to reset. And in the midst of you kind of chilling out, you hear that familiar call from the living room. Mom! And you think, I, there's no mom here. I don't, I don't know who they're talking to. Mom! And you're, you're just, I, I, got, I need a minute. So I'm scrolling Facebook, right? Or I'm praying. Or I'm, I'm looking at the Bible. I'm, 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 I'm just, I need a minute. Mom, you don't answer. So then what happens? That voice begins to move around the house. And you hear that voice from every room in the house. Mom! 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 No answer. Until the moment when they inevitably find the closed door, right? And what happens? Mom! And they knock, and they knock, and they knock. They know you're in there. You can't hide forever. The chocolate won't last all day. And so you do what? You collect yourself. 
you get it together, right? You take a breath, you pray, and you open that door. And you meet the request. I think that's the idea in verse 7. God. God. And you seek God. You seek His Word. You're looking. You're seeking for the answer. And then you know, you know where the answer is. You know the only person that can do anything about it in that moment is God. And so you knock. And you keep knocking until there's an answer. Oh, that we would pray and seek the Lord like our little children seek after us in our homes. That we would ask. That we would seek that we would pursue our Heavenly Father in prayer the way that child pursues their mom or dad. Look in verse 7 again. Listen, God's not ignoring you. Even if God is silent, God's not ignoring you. Look at the promises in verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, And you will find. Notice the affirmatives here. Knock. It will be opened to you. And then almost in an explanatory way, Jesus repeats Himself, verse 8. For. Because. Here's why you ask, seek, and knock. Because everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. So, what's going on here in verses 7 and 8? Are these verses teaching us that results are absolutely guaranteed? That our prayers serve as a a blank check, if you will, where then we get to cash them in for anything that we want? Are these affirmatives in verses 7 and 8 guaranteeing that God is always going to say yes to our prayer? I think if you have walked with the Lord for any stretch of time, you know that that's not what verses 7 and 8 mean. You know that God is not always going to say yes to every request of yours. And hopefully we know, and if we don't know, I would just remind us this morning that God is no genie in a bottle where we rub the lamp and He pops out and grants us our three wishes. God is not manipulated by us in that way. So what does this mean in verses 7 and 8? What it is teaching is it's teaching us about God's heart. It's teaching us about God's desire and God's pattern in answering the prayers of His people. We're learning here that God hears us when we pray. He cares about us. He cares about our needs, our requests. We're learning here in these verses that God delights when we ask, when we seek, and when we knock. We're learning that it's, it's God's good will, it's God's good pleasure to give us what we need 
and to open to us that which was previously closed. In the same way, beloved, that you delight when your child comes to you and says, hey, hey dad, I've I, I really, I really tried on this, but I, I can't, can you help me? Dad, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Mom, I, I don't know the, the answer here. Can you help? If you love your child, you, you, you love that. You love that they would come to you and that you are in a place to come alongside of them to shepherd and help them in that moment. Listen, nowhere, nowhere does God promise to give us everything that we ask for. But isn't, isn't it an encouragement to your heart to know that God's heart toward you is to hear you and to answer your prayer. Doesn't knowing that, being reminded of that in these verses, doesn't that compel you to not shrink away from Him, but to move toward Him in prayer, and asking and seeking and knocking? John Calvin said this, nothing is better adapted to excite us to pray than a full conviction that we shall be heard. Listen, if God doesn't promise to hear and provide, stop praying. Don't waste your time. But if you're reminded in this moment that God loves you and delights in you and that He is the source of innumerable good for you, and saints pray ask keep on seeking keep on knocking furthermore one of the great realities about prayer and that continual asking seeking knocking is that the more we pray the more our hearts get aligned to the heart of god the more that God's desires become our desires. His will becomes our will. What He loves, we begin to love. And the more that that happens, the more that Psalm 37.4 is going to be true when it says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your hearts. And again, it's not a blank check. For a new this or that or worldly want. But the promise is that as our heart and our affections align with God, we're going to want the things that God wants. And when that happens, guess what God's going to do? He's going to give you what you're asking for. Isn't that a kindness of the Lord? To not work against us but with us in prayer. So beloved, do you believe that God loves you? Maybe just start there. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God wants to hear from you? That He wants you to keep asking, seeking, and knocking? Do you believe that it really is God's heart to save that lost person you're praying for? Then keep asking. Do you really believe that it's God's heart to reconcile that fractured relationship? Then keep seeking. Do you really believe that it's God's heart toward you to meet that great and pressing need you have? If so, 
keep knocking. Martin Luther said this, he knows that we are timid and shy, that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great and we are so tiny that we do not dare to pray. That is why Christ wants to lure us away from such timid thoughts to remove our doubts and to have us go ahead confidently and boldly. Secondly, secondly, what's the reality of God's heart toward us? God, God's heart is to give us good things. It really is to give you good things things look in verse verses 9 and 10 what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish he will not give him snake will he and if you just let your eyes go ahead and fall down to verse 11 in verse 11 Jesus is going to make the point that God our heavenly father knows how to give good gifts to his children and that he delights to do so and in order to set that up in verses 9 and 10 Jesus is painting a couple of different scenarios for us all pointing to the same reality verse 9 there's no good father out there there's no good parent out there who has a hungry child. And that child comes to them, and look, I know children come all day long saying I'm hungry, but there's no good parent that when a child comes in hunger who says, hey, chew on this rock for a while. That is immensely unhelpful. It is immensely unloving and unkind. Or in verse 10, there's no father out there, no parent out there who has a hungry child and says, hey, can I get a fish to eat? There's no good parent that would then say, sure, here's a snake. Again, how unloving, how unkind to give your child something that would not only be unfruitful to them, but outright harmful to them. No loving, wise, attentive, caring parent gives unhelpful, damaging, harmful things. Neither will God. Neither will your heavenly Father do that. Church, God will not give us anything useless, anything harmful, or anything that is not for our good you know what that might sometimes mean that might sometimes mean that the answer to your request is a no it might mean that in order to protect you even though you think your request is what is best for you it might be that God who knows all things better than we do that God might just say no that's not what's good for you and that might rub against our standard of good, our idea of good. But if it comes from God, then it is perfectly holy and good. There's never going to be a moment, saints, when you call out to God in prayer and He gives you in return something that's going to be no good for you. How do we know that? Look at verse 11. If you then 
being evil. Know how to give good gifts to your children. So here's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, if if you know how to give them bread instead of a stone and fish instead of a snake, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? If we who are sinful, our motives are not always pure. If we would not give stones and snakes, if we who are sinful know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more is God equipped to give good things to His children Notice again in verse 11, we've seen this designation of God several times through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uses it again here, and it's really important in in, in our context. How much more will, how does he speak of God? Your Father who is in heaven. Here, Jesus is reminding us about some really important things about God. Here, Jesus is taking our eyes off of self and putting them on God. And He's reminding us that our Father who is in heaven means that God exercises a sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent care over His people. That God sits on the throne of the cosmos, of all creation. He rules and He reigns and is in control over all. He is all-wise, all-knowing. He is all-powerful. So God is able, by nature of who He is, as the Father in heaven, with the earth as His footstool, by His very nature, He is able to do what is good. But beyond this, That God is your Father in heaven. It means that God sits on a throne of complete holiness. With the living creatures and the angels before Him ever crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. And when we read that it is our Father in heaven who knows how to give good things, we're being reminded that flowing from His holy character, which dominates everything else about Him, God can only give you what is good. He can only bring into your life that which is good. I know, I know, It doesn't feel good sometimes. I know that by our reckoning of good, it's not good. I I know that that's how we look at, especially some of the trials, James 1, that we go through. But beloved, if it comes from God, and it does come from God, for He is seated on the throne of heaven, and if it comes from a holy God seated on the throne of heaven, It has to be good. 
and it has to be for your good. Even when it doesn't feel that way, seem that way, God is bound by His own holiness to do you good and to give you good things. As you look then to your good and able and holy Heavenly Father, start to rest in these truths from Scripture. Psalm 34, verses 9-10. to Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Listen to this Gospel reminder. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? All that you need. All that you need for life and godliness. God gives. Even when it maybe stings a bit. God is giving good things because our Heavenly Father knows how to do that. And so again, John Calvin said this, whenever we engage in prayer or whenever we feel that our ardor in prayer is is not sufficiently strong, we ought to remember the gentle invitation by which Christ assures us of God's fatherly kindness. Do you feel like your prayers are a little timid? A little weak? That's okay. Pray anyway. And in your weakness, do not lean on your own understanding. And in your weakness, remember God's holy strength. Remember God's holy attitude toward you. His precious child. Do you think, do you think for a second That God would call you out of darkness into His marvelous light and then leave you by yourself, helpless and without in this world? Do you think God would quit on you? Do you think God is not bound by His own covenant promises to you? to give you all good things, do not doubt. Look to God. See His heart towards you. Can I just maybe even close with a word of warning? Can I ask you to remember all the way back to Genesis 3, can I just ask you to remember that Adam and Eve, in the moments before they reached out, they took and they ate, that what's already going on in their hearts is a doubting of God's character, His nature, and His Word. The serpent comes, did God really say? And that doubt begins to grow. And the serpent says to them, no, you're not going to die. God's just holding some good things back from you. 
Because God knows in the day you eat from that fruit, that, that fruit off of that tree, you're going to be like him. And, and, and God is sinfully jealous. There's something wrong with God's character and nature. He's holding back some good things from you. And when they believed that, it was just too easy to take and to eat and to die in that sin and in that doubt of God's nature and His Word. Beloved, don't doubt God's character. Listen, you may not even feel worthy to pray and ask, but it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. And what has God told you to do? Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. God's going to answer. And when he answers, even if it's a no, it's going to be good. It's going to be for your good. God loves you. His heart is for you. It is toward you. As we close in prayer, how do you need to respond to that? Maybe it's, uh, God, I've doubted your character toward me. I've doubted your goodness, and I just want to confess that, God, and make that right. Maybe your response is you're, you're trying to do it all on your own. You can't do it on your own. You can't save yourself. You can't walk with the Lord on your own. And so you must humble yourself and let go of self and take hold of Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus to be saved. There might be a thousand other ways that God's calling you to respond to this. So as we pray, let's respond in obedience to the Lord together this morning. Father, we ask for your help in that. God, we ask that as we seek to live out, God, the the gospel that has saved us, God, as we seek to walk in relationship with You, as we seek to commune with You, God, forgive us for our prayerlessness. Whether it be a doubting of Your character or whether it be thinking that we can do it on our own, whatever the case may be, God, would You help? God, we, we, we know that You don't stand ready to condemn Your children so God, I pray that in whatever maybe we need to confess, Lord, that we would do that, that we would come to You, that we would, God, just make that area right in our relationship with You. God, there, in all the other ways maybe that You're calling people to trust You or to respond to You, God, I, I pray that as we pray now, as we sing, as we, God, as we just continually leave this place, but yet continually respond, God, that you would just by your Spirit help. God, we do trust you. Thank you for these really helpful reminders. Encouraging, life-giving reminders in your word. We love you and we thank you. And we pray it in Christ's great name. Amen. Amen. Church family, would you?